in this place. And I know that it's the Spirit of our Lord. There are sweet expressions on each face. And I know they feel the presence of our Lord. Sweet Holy Spirit, sweet heavenly dove, stay right here with us. Lord, keep filling us with your love. And for these blessings, we humbly lift our hearts in praise. Without a doubt, we'll know that we have been revived. When we shall leave this place, I greet you tonight in the lovely name above every name, the sweet and precious name of Jesus, the name that the angel told Mary, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The name that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. There's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The name that Paul spoke in the Philippian jail. When the jailer sprang in and called for a light and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. and Thou shalt be saved. We come in that name tonight. We exalt him, magnify him, and lift him up because he is worthy of all of our praise, the sacrifice of praise. Well, if you don't mind, <clears throat> I'm going to take this jacket off, if you don't mind. My wife told me if I didn't, she was going to buy me paper suits. She may be watching tonight. Hello, sweetheart. Come on, nod, give me your approval. I don't know why I sweat like I do. I was telling Tim, Johnny Pope told me one day, he said, Brother Mark, you're the most scriptural preacher I've ever seen. I said, how's that, Brother John? He said, you earn your living by the sweat of your brow. <laughs> but you know, I don't just sweat in hot places. I sweat any places. I remember one time for Brother Eugene Hayden, I was preaching a tent meeting in Purvis, Mississippi. They don't say Mississippi. They say Mississippi. Purvis, Mississippi. It was 30 degrees. It was a tent meeting in November. 
It was 30 degrees outside. I mean, it was cold enough where you could see your breath as you breathed. I felt like a Clydesdale horse hooked to a wagon. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I saw smoke coming from behind me over my head. Over my head, and I thought, my soul, is there a piece of equipment on fire? Is one of the amplifiers caught on fire? What's going on? I didn't realize it, but the cold air hit the top of my bald head. <clears throat> and it created condensation. And the smoke started coming off the top of my head. And Brother Hayden got up behind me and said, I got to tell you, folks, that's the first time I've ever seen a Baptist preacher smoke in the pulpit. <laughs> so, <laughs> believe me, I don't do it on purpose. And I don't try to do it to impress you. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, I really wish I didn't. But I'm 65 years old now, and I'm pretty much resigned to the fact that that's not going to happen. Nonetheless, I love you in the Lord tonight. I'm glad to be here. What a sweet spirit there was in the service this morning and tonight. I'm grateful for your presence in the services this evening. Do come each night. Bring somebody with you. Amen. Bring somebody with you. I still believe that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. I want you to look with me to the book of Revelation tonight. Now just turn to chapter 1. <clears throat> Believe it or not, we're going to preach all the way from chapter 1 to chapter 22. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. But I do want to start in chapter 1. And I want to close in chapter 22. I know your pastor is preaching on the book of Revelation. I have not heard any of the messages. So whatever I say tonight is not to add to nor to take from. Whatever I say tonight is what the Holy Spirit has laid upon my heart for this service. But in chapter 1, what the Lord gives us through the pen of John is an overview of the book of Revelation. An overview of the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to outline the book of Revelation, you would find the general outline right here in chapter 1 and verse number 19. Look what it says here in chapter 1 and verse 19. Write the things which thou hast seen. That's the first point. First division. And the things which are, that's the second division of the book of Revelation. And the things which shall be hereafter, that's the third division. Basically, in my mind, in my thinking, the book of Revelation is divided into three Separate sections. The first section, dearly beloved, describes the past. That's chapter 1. It describes what happened on the day that John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him and gave him this mandate. We have to go all the way back into the past. It tried to 
Paul, the great apostle in all, but it didn't shut him up. They sent him out to the Isle of Patmos with a colony of lepers, hoping he would catch leprosy and that the voice of John would be silenced. But before that happened, God had a book for him to write. The things which thou hast seen. Chapter 1, the past. Then there's the second section of the book of Revelation, and that's the things which are, the things which are. That's where we are tonight. And he's basically talking about the church age. I'm dispensational in my theology. I mean, I'm so dispensational in my theology that uh, as a premillennialist, I don't even like to go to the post office. I mean, I refuse to eat post-toasties. But I am, dis- now I'm not ultra dispensation. I don't believe you can lock God in a box. I believe God does what he wants to, when he wants to, to whom he wants to, and where he wants to. God is God. But nonetheless, in chapters 2 and 3, we have the present the things which are. And he's talking about the church age where you and I are living tonight. And you know where we're living tonight? We're living in chapter 3 and verse number 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. I believe we're living in the 11th hour and the 59th minute. You know, there's a group of people in America tonight that wish we'd just go away. I want to tell them so bad, hang on, sweetheart. It's coming real soon to your locale. I know they'll get on the internet and they'll get on the television stations and I don't know how they'll describe it. But brother, where we'll be, they can't find us with a telescope or any other kind of a scope because we'll be with him. That's chapters 2 and 3. That's the things which are. And that's the present. Then, dearly beloved, there's the third section of the book of Revelation, and that's the things which shall be hereafter. That's the perpetual or the eternal. And that runs from chapter 4 all the way to the end of the book. There it is right there. That's a simple overview of the book of Revelation. This last section, the perpetual, the things which shall be hereafter are basically dominated by one event, and that event is the coming of the Lord. And I want to say tonight, He's coming. He's coming and I'm ready for him to come. My name's written in the book of life. I know where I'm going when I die. Jesus lives in my heart. He came into my heart on the 8th of June, 1971, and he's never left. But basically, this last section 
is dominated by the second advent that we call the coming of the Lord. What you'll see and what you'll learn from the book of Revelation is that this event, this advent we call the coming of the Lord is basically divided up into two separate happenings. Number one in chapter four. In verse number one, we see the rapture of the church, the snatching away, the snatching by force, the catching away of the church that's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 51 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 16. And boy, I love the words of the apostle Paul where he said the dead in Christ shall rise first. That's the Baptist. except for the home church. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him to meet the Lord in the clouds, in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's chapter 4 and verse number 1. I don't have time to go back there and read it, but I think you'll find that it says this. He beheld and looked. And there's a door opened in heaven. Guess who the door is? Jesus is the door. Amen. The door's open in heaven and there's a shout that goes out. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like a trumpet. And in that chapter, friend, John does what the church is going to do. He leaves this earth, he goes to heaven, and he has a bird's eye view of what's going to happen throughout the rest of the age. The rapture, the church is coming very soon. I believe that's why in 3 and 20 he said, I, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And the word knock there is not just a gentle noise. It is an urgent rapping. You know why? Because chapter 4 and verse 1 is coming. Jesus is coming. What we're going to do for Jesus, we need to do now. Our lost loved ones and people that we know that need to be saved, we need to be on our knees now praying for them and striving to bring them into the grace of God. Then we swing all the way back to chapter 19. You don't need to turn there yet. Because we're not going to look in chapter 19 anyway. But we get all the way back to chapter 19, and what do we see? (laughs) We see the skies rolling back like a scroll. The judgment seat of Christ has already taken place. The Bema seat, the marriage supper of the Lamb has already taken place. Jesus says, mount your white steeds. Church, we're going back. And I tell you, I want to say this sometime to that crowd that wants us gone. We're going to be gone, but bad news, we're coming back. And we're going to rule and reign a thousand years with Jesus. I'm going to be the mayor of Houston or the governor of Texas. Hook them horns. The skies roll back like a scroll. Jesus is on his white horse. He's not like the Antichrist in chapter 6 and verse 1 who has a bow and no arrow. Oh, no, he's got a sharp two-edged sword going out of his mouth. 
The armies of the world are going to be gathered against him. His vesture is going to be dipped in blood. And on his thigh, a name is going to be written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. My friend, on that day, the Bible says the blood will flow to the bridles of the horses. And guess what? He's not going to need an army with swords and spears and staves and guns and ammunition. Guess what? He's not going to need laser-guided missiles or cluster bombs or anything else. You know what he's going to do? He's going to defeat them with the word of his mouth. And I like what John Phillips said in his commentary. He said he's basically going to use two words, drop dead. (laughs) Oh, it just won't be that easy, preacher. Oh, hey, if he spoke this world into existence with the word of his mouth, he's not going to have any problem with the armies that beset against him. So this last section is dominated by the advent of, of the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, divided into two different happenings, the rapture, chapter 4, and the second coming of Christ to this earth in chapter 19. Now that brings me to chapter 22. See there, we've preached the whole book of Revelation. But let's go to chapter 22. For the sake of time, I'm only going to read three verses. But this is how the book ends. Here's how it ends. And the Lord is wanting us to listen real close. He's saying, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. Look what it says in verse number seven. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Look at verse number 12. Now look what he says. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. And then look at verse number 20. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. And then listen to what John says, Even so come, Lord Jesus. That's what we ought to be saying tonight. As we see the world crumbling down all around us, as we see the trials on every hand, and even if life was at its best, our hearts ought to long and look for the coming of the Lord. Our hearts ought to cry out with John's tonight, even so come, Lord Jesus. What do we see here at the end of the book? I'll tell you what we see very simply. We see John waiting for Jesus to come. You know that's what we're supposed to be doing? Listen to Paul's words to the church at Thessalonica in the first epistle, chapter 1, verse number 9 and 10. Listen to this. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, how that you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And look at this. 
and to wait for his son from heaven. The Bible says that he'll appear the second time to those that look, that look for his appearing. To those that long for his appearing. To those that are just waiting for Jesus to come, whose hearts cry out with John, even so come. Lord Jesus, in the words of Matthew 24, ring clear in my heart tonight, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? For just a few minutes. I want to magnify from this text and these verses what you and I need to be doing while we're waiting for Jesus to come. We don't need to sell our homes and build a convent and go sit on a hill somewhere and wait for Jesus to come. No, sir, as a matter of fact, we need to do what Jesus told his disciples in one of his parables. In Luke chapter 19, in verse number 13, he said, Occupy, occupy till I come. What does that involve? Pray with me as we cover these points tonight. What should we be doing? While we're waiting for Jesus to come, I want to say number one, you and I need to be walking submissively. Walking submissively. Let me just show you this. Look what he says in verse 7. We read it a moment ago. He said, Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. This book right here. And he's specifically talking about the book of Revelation. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of this book. What he says, if you will, with me in verse number 9, the, Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which, here it is again, keep the sayings of this book. Let's move on a little further. Look what he says in verse number 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments. Now he's getting more general now. He's getting broader now. Up to now he's talking about the book of Revelation. But now he's broadening this scope and he uses the phrase his commandments. What he's talking about, dear friends, is this book. Blessed are they, he says in verse 14, that do his commandments. They may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. What John is magnifying here, dearly beloved, is obedience to the Word of God. What he's saying that as far as what you and I should be doing while we're waiting for Jesus to come, you and I need to be fleshing out. You and I need to be living out and putting on demonstration before a lost and dying world the Word of God which has the power to save and the power to keep. 
You and I, dearly beloved, need to be reading this book daily and meditating on this book daily. You and I need to come to the house of God and hear the Word of God preached. And we don't just need to be hearers of the Word. We need to be doers of the Word, a la James chapter 1 in verse 18. And we need to be walking submissively. It has been said, and rightfully so, that when the world is at its worst, it needs to see the church at its best. What the world needs to see tonight is come what may, coronavirus or not, social injustice or not, political confusion or not. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. They need to see that this book is real to Christians and real enough not just for them to talk about it but to walk about it. Let me just say tonight that there's two reasons I see here why you and I ought to walk submissively to the sayings of this book. Number one, because of its author. (laughs) I like what he says in verse number 14, his commandments, his commandments. If you believe like I do, and I know you do, I know your pastor has preached this. That is that our prophecy came not in old time by will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That word moved there literally means to be picked up and carried along. It means that they did not operate on their own power. God breathed his book into them. They literally took spiritual dictation. They wrote it down and Paul said later on in one of his epistles that all scripture is given by inspiration, the breath of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good work. I want to say tonight that I believe this is God's book. I don't believe there's any mistakes in it. I believe it's plenarily, verbally inspired. The word plenary means the thoughts are inspired. The word verbal means the words are inspired. And if you and I are waiting on Jesus to come, you know what we ought to do? We ought to say amen to the book. And we ought to walk out these back doors and live it. Don't cut the switch on and off. Keep the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Why? Because of its author. Secondly, because of its authority. Its authority. This is an authoritative book. That's why Paul told Timothy, in the last days the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine. But they'll heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. But he said, what do you do, young Timothy? He said, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Whether you feel like it or don't feel like it, preach the word. It's not your delivery. It's not your homiletical ability. It is not your oratical ability. It is the authority of the word of God that paralyzes a man's heart and brings him face to face with his own mortality. 
So what should we do while we're waiting for Jesus to come? Number one, we should walk submissively. Amen, preacher. Preach the word, preacher. Call sin, sin. Lift up Jesus. Magnify the Son of God. Preach hell hot and heaven beautiful. I believe it, preacher. Well, if we do, let us live it. Number two, (laughs) what should we do while we wait for Jesus to come? We should walk submissively, no doubt. But can I say secondly, we should worship frequently. Amen? We should worship frequently. Look at verse number nine. Here I go, sweating. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not. John had fallen at the feet of this angel. And he was worshiping. He says, For I am thy fellow servant. And of thy brethren the prophets. And of them which keep the sayings of this book. And then look what he says. Worship God. Worship God. And I say to you tonight, dearly beloved, he's the only one worthy of worship. We don't bow down to Buddha. We don't bow down to Muhammad. And we don't bow to Mecca. And we don't bow to materialism and the gods of this world and the idols of this world. We bow down to one. And who is it tonight, preacher? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God. He is the Son of God. We don't believe in three gods who are one. We believe in one God who is three. One God who manifests himself in three different persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That fellow asked me today, he said, well, preacher, when we get to heaven, are we going to see all three of them? I said, sure we are. He said, well, what are they going to look like? I said, I'll tell you what they're going to look like. Paul said it this way, that in him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We're going to see the Father, we're going to see the Son, and we're going to see the Spirit in Jesus. He is the diadem of glory. He is the crown jewel of eternity. We lay our eyes upon him. You know what we're going to do? We're going to fall down and worship him. It's evident here. That worship involves a command. You look at this in chapter 9, or excuse me, chapter 22, and verse number 9, these last two words constitute a command. Can I point out, number one, that we're commanded to worship daily and privately? The Bible saying, I don't have time to get into all of it tonight, but the Bible speaks about our, our prayer life, and, and the Bible speaks about uh, eating and feasting on the Word of God. 
There's enough written in the Psalms to substantiate that, and that is this, that each and every day we ought to go into the throne room of grace and lavish our love upon Jesus and praise him for what great things he has done. We ought to open this book every day and feed our souls and learn more about him. And in doing so, dearly beloved, in essence, what we are doing, we are worshiping him. Hey, I love church, and and I think you ought to come to church. I'm a church man. I think you ought to be here every time the doors open. I think you ought to get here when they're unlocking it and stay here till they lock the door. I love church, but I'm here to tell you if all you're dependent on is a Sunday morning sermon, a Sunday night preaching, and a Wednesday night lesson to substantiate and propagate your spirituality, you're going to fall short. It demands that you go into the presence of Jesus each and every day and praise him and thank him and lavish your love upon him. Worship him for what he's done in your life. What he's doing, the writer of Hebrews said it this way. Seeing we have such an high priest that has passed into the heavens for us. Let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we might find mercy And grace to help us in time of need. Grace is not just an element by and through in which we are saved. But grace is an enablement by and through in which we serve. And we need his strength and we need his power and we need his grace every day. We're commanded to worship daily and privately. Let me ask you something. Do you have a prayer closet? You need one. Oh, it may not be a closet. But brothers and sisters, you and I all need a place where we can steal away to Jesus. You and I all need a place where we can go into the throne room of grace and fall down in his presence and groan in our heart. It's not the words you say. God's not impressed by the beauty of your prayers. Sometimes when you get in there, all you may be able to do is groan. But I love the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, where he said concerning the Holy Spirit, sometimes we don't even know what to pray for as we ought but the Holy Spirit uttereth groanings for us which cannot be understood. Do you ever find yourself, maybe it's a rebelling child, maybe it's a sick loved one, maybe it's an overwhelming circumstance in your life, and maybe, dearly beloved, you find yourself going into the prayer closet and all you can say is, Oh God, oh God, You may not be able to say anything else, but I want you to know his ear is bent low. He's listening to you. His everlasting arms are reaching up under you and picking you up and carrying you through all the midst of the trial and tribulation that lies ahead. We need to learn that we're commanded to worship privately and daily. We need to learn that we're commanded to worship publicly and weekly. I know people don't like to hear this. 
I've heard people say so many times, you don't have to be a good Christian. You don't have to go to church to be a good Christian. Well, number one, I absolutely disagree with that statement. And even if that was true, that you can be a good Christian, you, you, you can, how do I want to say this? Forgive me. Even if that was true, and you could say that going to church doesn't make you a good Christian, turn that phrase around, and I will tell you this, that if you are a good Christian, you will go to church. Took me a little while to get it out. Sometimes it's like a fur ball in a cat's throat. <coughs> Sometimes it takes it. You just got to get it out. Now, I know people don't like to hear this, but Hebrews 10 and 25 is still in the book. It's in the book. And by the way, it's, that's not the only verse. But I'll mention that one because it's the most well-known. Where he said, forsake not the assembling. You know what the church means? The word church in the Greek language is ekklesia. It means a called out assembly. And the writer of Hebrews is referring to the assembling of the people of God. He says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Looks like Paul had the same problem in his day. Some people just didn't come to church. Don't, don't let me lose you now. Put your fingers right here and push you up. As the manner of some is, but exhort one another. You know one reason why you need to come to the house of God? Well, it encourages your pastor, number one. It encourages him to preach. You know another reason why you need to come to church? It encourages the, the, it encourages the people of God. There's new Christians that need to see you older Christians here when the door is open. There's people that have been saved for a while that they need to see you here. Just walking in here and knowing that you've lost a son or a daughter. Knowing maybe you've gone through divorce. Knowing you've experienced financial disaster. But by being here, you're saying the God of the day is the God of the night. The God of the mountain is the God of the valley. Come what may, night or day, mountain or valley, God is God, and I need to be in his presence. And then he went on to say in verse 26, because somehow, some way, we've convinced ourselves that this is okay. That we can miss church, and it's really just an option. But look at the first few words of verse 26. Look what it says. For if we sin willfully. It is a sin to fail to assemble publicly and weakly with the family of God. What should we be doing while we're waiting for Jesus to come? Number one, we should be walking submissively, keeping the sayings of this book, worshiping frequently. John says very clearly, or the angel did, he said to worship God. But I want to say number three, we should be witnessing urgently. Witnessing urgently. Hey, folk, uh, I'm not against lifestyle evangelism. 
I'm not against it. And by the way, if you're not going to live it, don't lip it. There's nothing worse than a Christian who'll lip it but won't live it. And in that sense, I'm all for lifestyle evangelism. But I want you to understand tonight, faith cometh by hearing, not seeing, but hearing the Word of God. And brother, when that jailer asked Paul how to be saved, he opened his mouth and he spoke to them. When Andrew first got saved, he went and found Simon Peter and said, Come see a man. When that woman at the well got saved, she went into the city and said, Come see a man. When that maniac of Gadara got saved, he walked into Betshan, the first city of the Decapolis, and he said, Come and see somebody that's broken the chains for me. I'll tell you what, if Jesus has saved you, he's taken the bottle out of your hand and the needle out of your hand. Jesus has saved you and changed your heart. There ought to be a warning in your soul. There ought to be a warning that causes you to say what Simon Peter said to those Jews in the city of Jerusalem, judging your own eyes what we should do. But as for us, we cannot help but speak the thing. We've seen and heard, I think, one of the curses of the church today is we've gotten where we can help it. But we need what Simon Peter had. A good old Casey, the eye cannot help it. Witness urgently. Let me show you this in the text. He says in verse 10, and he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings, look at this, of the prophecy of this book while the time is at hand. This is a very interesting phrase. The book of Revelation is intrinsically connected to the book of Daniel. You really can't understand fully the book of Revelation without understanding Daniel. And you really can't understand the fulfillment of Daniel without reading the book of Revelation. But if you will remember with me, at the book of Daniel, what did the Lord say at the end of the book? He said, seal this up, Daniel. Seal it up. For the time is not now. Seal it up. Keep it under lock and key. Don't speak it. Don't talk about it. But when we come to the end of the book of Revelation, what does he say? He says, leave it open. Preach it. Tell it. Talk about it. Don't seal it up. Don't be ashamed of it. Tell the world that Jesus is coming. Tell the world, no matter what they think, that one day the Son of God is coming back to this earth. And where they spend eternity will have everything to do with what they do with Christ. There's two reasons I see in this verse. Why we need to witness urgently. Number one, time is short. Time is short. I don't know when he's coming, but I personally believe that we're living in the generation that could possibly see the rapture of the church and seven years later the coming of Jesus Christ to this earth. I believe that with all of my heart. I believe we're living in the 11th hour and the 59th minute. 
I believe at any time now the sound of the trumpet could go forth. Look what John says here. He said, for the time is at hand. John, it's here. Don't seal it up. And can I say to the church at night, there are souls at stake tonight. They need this message. They need for us to tell them that he's coming. He's coming. He's coming, child of God. What you're going to do for Jesus, you need to do now. If you have lost loved ones that aren't saved, you need to tell them now. If you have friends you work with that aren't saved, you need to tell them now. For the time is at hand. I'll tell you what. One thing we've seen in this lecture, and I'm not going to get into all that, but the powers that be, even in this country, are bent on a one-world government. And friend, all you have to do is go into the sayings of this book and see that one day the man of sin is going to come. There's going to be three and a half years of false peace. Uh, the Bible says in Revelation 6, he's going to be on a white horse. He's going to reflect Jesus in ways. He's going to have a bow, but he's going to have no arrow. That is a symbol of false peace. For three and a half years, it'll all seem hunky-dory. Everybody will finally say, well, we finally found the man with the answers. We finally found the answer. And in the middle of Daniel's week of seven days, seven years, he walks in the temple. We know the temple is going to be rebuilt. He proclaims himself as God. It's called the abomination of desolation in the holy place. All hell is going to break loose on this earth. Two-thirds of this world's population is going to be destroyed. You wonder what's going to happen to America. Well, I will say this. I don't see America vividly in prophecy. But I will say this, the seat of power when Jesus comes back is going to be in the Middle East, not the West. Pestilence, famine, judgment, pillages from the heavens, hail, pillages from hell itself will rise. This world will be destroyed. You and I need to witness urgently because the time is short. You and I need to witness urgently because of the terror of the Lord. Let me show you this in verse number 11. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Let's think about this just for a minute. Here's what the Lord is saying here. When he comes, the way he's going to find you is how you'll spend eternity. If he finds you unjust, you'll remain unjust. If he finds you just, you'll remain just. When he comes, if you're saved by the grace of God, he'll take you on to glory. But when he comes, if you're not, my friend, you'll suffer forever in a horrible place called hell. It alarms me tonight. We're not hearing many messages on hell anymore. I know it's not politically correct, but it's biblically correct. 
And that should be our concern. Number four, what should we be doing while we're waiting for Jesus to come? We should be walking submissively keeping the sayings of this book worshiping frequently worshiping God witnessing urgently seal not up the sayings of this prophecy but number four we should be working tirelessly O land of rest for thee I sigh when will the moment come when I shall lay my armor by and rest with thee at home We'll work till Jesus comes. We'll work. We'll work till Jesus comes. We'll work. Sunday school teachers keep on teaching. Preachers keep on preaching. Singers keep on singing. Deacons keep on deacon. But work. Work tirelessly. The time of rest will come. But keep your fighting britches on. The battle rages about us. He says very clearly in verse 12, look at this. And it is an allusion to the judgment seat of Christ. Look what he says. Behold, I come quickly. And my reward is with me. To give every man according as his work shall be. What does this verse convey to us about the judgment seat of Christ or even the great white throne? Number one, there's a record that God is keeping. He says very clearly in this verse, according as his work shall be. In other words, God knows your work. The Bible says in the day of judgment, you and I will give an account of every idle word. Let me tell you something. I know you got some wonderful computers up there and some marvelous hard drives up there. But I'm going to tell you, God has a hard drive that's never been seen on the face of this earth. Our lives are being recorded on that hard drive. Our works are being recorded. And there's a record that God is keeping. I'm here to tell you, dearly beloved, that which has been done to the glory of God will be purified like gold and silver and precious stone. And that which has been done for the flesh will burn like wood, hay, and stubble. It's not that I'm preaching or here at church tonight, but it's why I'm preaching and why I'm here. I'm here to impress you, get brownie points with God or... If I'm here for man to see me, it'll burn like wood, hay, and stubble. And I'm here to tell you there's one who can look deeper than the surface and beneath the superficiality. He not only knows what we're doing, but he knows why we're doing it. But there's not only a record that God is keeping, but there's a reward that God is giving. My reward is with. I don't have time to get into these tonight, but there's five different rewards spoken of in the New Testament that he's going to give out at the judgment seat of Christ. Five different rewards. Five different crowns. (laughs) Crowns like Paul spoke of in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8 where he said, I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. Therein is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. 
which the Lord shall give to me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all those that love his appearing, his reward is with him. Must I go and empty-handed? My friend, I don't want to be saved just so as by fire. I want to hear him say, well done. I want some rewards that I can throw at his feet and say, unto thee be glory. This is only possible because of you. Now close with this. What should we be doing while we're waiting for Jesus to come? Oh, walking submissively. Worshiping frequently, witnessing urgently, working tirelessly, and watching expectantly. Watching expectantly. We read it, verse 7, verse 12, and verse number 20. He said, I'm coming. He'll appear the second time, Matthew said, unto those that look for his appearing. What are you looking for tonight? Well, if you were looking for a conservative, I don't even know the word for it. I just lost the word. You know, one thing about being 65, it's kind of like your hair. Things just leave. Administration. If you were looking for a conservative administration, this election disappointed you. You know, if you're looking for the economy to grow and all these things that people think that constitute a happy life, more than likely you're going to be disappointed. But I'm here to tell you tonight, if you're looking for Jesus to come, there's no disappointment in Jesus. It may not be tonight, and then again it may be, for we give the invitation tonight. John said it this way, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we shall see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Somebody asked me one day, preacher, what are we going to look like when we get to heaven? I said, well, whatever a 33-year-old glorified Galilean looks like, that's what we're going to look like. Why should we be watching expectantly? Well, number one, because of what the Scripture is saying. Now, I'm not going to get into all that tonight, but three times in this contextual paragraph, he said, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. Number two, because of what the signs are showing. In Matthew 24, now that's a Messianic gospel. It has application to us, but it was written to the Jews. And in Matthew 24, there is no rapture language in Matthew 24. It is all second coming language when Christ comes back to this earth. And listen to what Jesus said in that chapter. He said, there shall be famines pestilences and earthquakes. When you see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh even at the door. And he's not talking about the rapture. He's talking about the second coming of Christ to this earth. This year, 
2020, we've had famine. Do you know there's more people that are starving in America tonight as a result of this pandemic than ever before in the course of our history that is comparable to the Great Depression of the late 20s and early 30s? What about pestilence? We've seen a virus invade our lives, invade our towns, invade our families and homes, invade our nation, and not only our nation, but this world. Famines, pestilences. Then he said earthquakes. I've been watching this year. And in America alone tonight, this year, there have been seven major earthquakes of over 5.2 on the Richter scale. Most of them in the Northwest, and even one in Virginia and North Carolina. And Jesus said, when you see these things, know that it's near, even at the door. Why should we be watching expectantly? Because of what the Scriptures say and because of what the signs are showing. Let me just say this. I heard Brother Roloff tell this story. It's somewhat humorous. Brother Olaf ordained my father to preach back in 1948. My daddy was a captain in the Army Air Corps in World War II. Got saved during the war, came home, and the Lord called him to preach. Went to Corpus Christi and served under Brother Olaf at the old Second Baptist Church. And so I had many opportunities to be around him and hear him growing up. And I remember a story he told about the second coming. About these verses right here, he was preaching uh, out of this passage and and he, he, he was reading these verses, and the first time he read it, he leaned into the pulpit and said, Behold, I come quickly. And the second time he read it, he leaned in the pulpit and said, Behold, I come quickly. And the third time he read it, he leaned into the pulpit, and the pulpit fell over the front of the platform. He stumbled over the pulpit and the platform and landed in the lap of one of his church members. He looked at his church member and said, oh, I'm so sorry. And the church member looked at him and said, that's all right, brother. You done warned me three times. (laughs) How many times is he going to have to tell us how much more do we need to see? How much more? Church, you better prepare yourselves. I believe in the days to come church is going to experience the birth pains of the tribulation period. And in doing so, I believe the church is going to suffer some persecution. We're fixing to find out who's really real. And I trust that you are tonight. Now, he's coming. What are you and I doing?